Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 57. I'm Paul Rodriguez at thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Rob Gardner. Rob is the investment director for St. James's Place Wealth Management, responsible for growing and protecting the wealth of over 650,000 clients. He co-founded Red Start, a financial education charity, and is the author of a children's book, Save Your Acorns, that helps four to six-year-olds learn about saving. In 2017, he gave a TEDx talk on the subject of helping parents teach children how money works and how to make it work for them. Rob chairs the Children's Financial Education Policy Council, which has helped raise over £1 million to help evidence the case for high-quality financial education at primary school level. We're delighted to have you on the show, Rob. Great to be on, Paul. Thanks a lot. Rob, what sparked your interest in saving and investments? Good question. I've been asking myself that for a while. I would say when I first started my career in banking and finance, but actually, I remember from a very young age collecting Coca-Cola bottles in the playground when I was seven or eight and returning them for money. So that's probably... Uh, my my earliest memory, uh, and that was because I lived in Argentina when I grew up, uh, and so oh, wow. so I grew up in a world of inflation. You know, so inflation was very real for me. Prices would go up every day. We'd go to the supermarket, and you'd have to replace supermarket sweep. We'd you know divide and conquer and run round. And if you grab something before the price change, you could buy it at the checkout at that price and remember this is you know 1985 so you know there's no digital barcodes it was just a sticker so oh wow that's amazing so that sounds very much like buffett by the way because didn't he used to sell like he used to buy a packet of chewing gum and then sell them individually i I think well yeah i'm I'm not i'm not sure about uh what what, what buffett did or or didn't do but I, i i did sort of take that sort of commercial nous with me when I was at sort of boarding school uh, later on, my uh, my parents lived to, used to live in in Saudi, and I used to uh, I used to buy cigarettes when I'd come back, and I'd, I'd definitely sell them for a, a nice turn. Uh, <laughs> obviously, highly illegally, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, edit that. Okay, your secret safe with us. So. Yes, <laughs> excellent. Um, but so so you got interested at a very young age then in in saving an investment. I mean, I'm just thinking if you were at that age, receiving your pesos and the value of those pesos were going down almost daily or virtually hour by hour. How do you think that made you want to save? I mean, that would probably want to make you want to spend the money rather than save it. Yeah, well, so the trick was converting your money to the to dollars on the black market, in which case right. uh, your, your dollar. So I wouldn't say I understood investments, and maybe we can come back to that. I only really understood investments much later in my career, i.e. the idea of investing in, let's say, stocks and assets, as opposed to having money, putting it in a bank account and earning interest or understanding foreign exchange. So I think I understood the power of saving, I understood inflation, and I knew exchange rates. I knew all the South American exchange rates at the time. So I knew what what dollar would buy you. And, And therefore, I suppose... The, the the thing you did was you you got if we got money or if we got uh, from our parents it was in dollars and you'd only change it into the local currency at the last possible moment uh, to to make your purchase and you just change enough because otherwise you're just going to lose everything. That's a very early age though. That's yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I hadn't realized that it's one of those things that you don't really that you don't really think about. And then you realize that not many people, certainly of my age, have experienced very real inflation. It's something I'm guessing living in the UK uh, tends to be, you know, people who experienced inflation in the 70s. Uh, but, you know, anyone, you know, if, if I'd been born and lived in the UK, that, that, that sort of sense of inflation, you wouldn't really have experienced apart from, you know, remembering a packet of polos cost 10p and... Yeah, I don't even know how much back of the pearls cost now, but uh, so four thousand two hundred and forty-nine pounds, I think. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a, there's a guy we're hoping to have on uh, the show in the fullness of time, Morgan Housel. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, I US, follow him on Twitter. Uh, yeah, US yeah. blog, really really good US blogger, and he he said something recently along the lines of uh, one of the most important factors behind a person's uh, investment outlook, career 
successes is simply when they were born. It's, there's a there's an aspect to just the luck of when you're born and, and sort of the hand you're dealt. And I mean, you, you talk about a frankly kind of like a sort of a, a baptism of fire when it comes to the fairly early experience of of high inflation. And um, I'm going to be 50 later this month, and I haven't experienced significant inflation in anything other than asset prices in the whole of my adult life but that but but uh, isn't isn't the same as won't yeah well well so to put it in context so I, i've just checked so a packet of pillows is 60p and i remember them being 10p yeah. but that kind of inflation would happen within three months in argentina that that it could happen in a day utterly frightening isn't it really yeah i mean how do you plan for anything well, I mean, you how have, did you? you? Well, you. So, I, so the routine was my mum and dad. Uh, they were they were teachers. Uh, they'd get paid. Uh, we'd go on that month. They'd go to the supermarket if we needed a haircut, if we needed shoes. So you purchase everything you need, uh, and then my dad would go to what must only have looked like a drug dealer's house with big black metal bars, Dobermans, uh, and exchange his pesos, Australians, depending on when it was. Uh, into dollars, uh, and then we'd take those dollars home and we'd hide them around the house. Uh, oh, wow. And and yeah, and then you'd sort of dip into those dollars uh, as and uh, as and when you needed them. So clearly, th- those formative years have had a big impression on you, and and you obviously wanted to share that. I mean, because you could have just kept that knowledge to yourself and and continued to invest throughout throughout your life, but you decided not to do that. Yeah, I suppose my, my, what I've come to realize is that the, the, the basics of, of, of finance, and so we can sort of kid ourselves that we're all very clever, but the, the basics of it, of uh, I have a catchphrase, which I teach to young children and actually even young adults, but earn it, keep it, grow it. I think those are the three components of, of wealth creation. So the earn it was this idea that even in a playground as a seven-year-old with no pocket money, there are opportunities out there to earn money. Kids were leaving their Coca-Cola bottles. I could go and grab them, and I could take them back and get get some money. The second part, which is I think the bit that people struggle with the most, is keep it. Uh, you know, how do I avoid spending? Uh, you know, spending my my money. And maybe we can come back and talk about Johnny Depp and Michael Jordan, who are the two examples I use when talking to kids. Uh, and then the third part is grow it. And I'd say that the grow it bit. I've probably only really understood in maybe the last 10, maybe 15 years uh, of my life, or probably really in the last 10 years, because before that, you could probably grow your money, certainly in the UK, in, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, just by leaving it in a bank account and shopping around for the best deal and getting about 6% and roughly doubling your money every 10 years. So the idea that you'd invest to to, to grow your wealth is something that I've only really understood. And, and I think, actually, when you break it down like that, it can be taught to anyone. And so I, I try and teach young people how to buy a house in 10 years, uh, you know, just by foregoing advice. And advice might be a coffee, or a, a takeout and, and using a license or using tax relief, uh, and then investing and how the power of those three things uh, can sort of effectively almost triple your money over over a decade. That's incredible. I mean, I've got two kids. My son is eight. My daughter's eleven. My daughter will save her money naturally. I've never really said very much to her about it, and she's deciding to save. I'm more worried about my son who wants to spend every single penny on on either Lego or dinosaurs, which I have some sympathy for in terms of you know you know he just gets so excited about it. So he's so, already he's already mastered diversification then. <laughs> Uh, so, so I, I'm particularly keen on your methods for teaching someone who I think is going to be quite difficult to get them to save. So, how do we do? Well, so, so I, I mean, I, I'm a big advocate of financial education, and and I suppose I, I sort of set up a charity to go in and, and teach it at schools. But our money saving habits, and habits is the key word, are formed by the age of seven. Uh, and you know, there, there's the sort of Walter Mitchell marshmallow test, which covers a yes. whole load of things, whether it's diet and relationships and, and, and money. Uh, but that this was more recent work done in sort of 2013 at, at sort of Cambridge uh, University. So I suppose it's sort of building that that awareness and delayed gratification in in, in uh, 
from an early moment. So I, I wrote this book a few years ago called Save Your Acorns. It's a children's book. It's 850 words. It's written for four to six-year-olds. Uh, and, and really, I'm trying to teach this idea that just if you get 10 acorns, the squirrels, they put away too. So they still enjoy their money. So I think, you know, we're, we're not trying to teach a very sort of thrifty lifestyle. But if you get a pound, spend 80p and, and, and keep 20p. And at the end of the year, you know, those 50, 20p's are, are, are worth a decent amount of money. And you can, you can do something with that. And uh, and try and teach sort of planning and saving for goals, so maybe buying bigger items uh, than they'd uh, otherwise be able to to, to get hold of. Right. But, but but what I what I try and get kids to think about is the difference between sort of when people think someone is rich uh, and someone who is wealthy. And often I think people think rich is to do with earning more money. Uh, and so I just say, okay, so Johnny Depp is he? Uh, you know, do you think he's rich? Do you think he's wealthy? Uh, and uh, you, I, I don't know if you know this, but his, his nickname is really Johnny Debt, uh, as in he's broke, he's bankrupt. So uh, I asked the kids, you know, does he earn a lot of money? And they all know who Jack Sparrow is. Uh, and he earns uh, lots of money. And I go, does he know how to keep it? Uh, and the answer is, you know, no, he doesn't know how to uh, to keep it. I mean, uh, pirate, piracy, piracy is a notoriously fickle profession. So, <laughs> uh, so he doesn't know how to to keep it, and because he doesn't know how to keep it, uh, he doesn't know how to uh, how to grow it. Whereas you sort of c- compare and contrast that with with someone like Michael Jordan, who you know is arguably one of the best NBA you know players of all time, uh, and yeah, he earns a lot of money. Uh, I think he earned $93 million over 15 years, but his 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 value now is $2.8 billion. Uh, and that's because he's done savvy deals with Nike, he's invested, but not only did he earn a lot of money, but he also understood that you needed to keep hold of it uh, and you need to be able to, to to grow it. And actually, sports sports people in the US struggle particularly hard because they have to pay tax in different states and they get paid gross uh, and they don't realize they have to pay tax and it's an absolute nightmare. So many, many sports players can find themselves uh, (laughs) running out of cash uh, very, very quickly. And uh, I think Lance Armstrong was one of the earliest investors in Uber and I don't know whether he got out or not. I think he invested in Uber when it was worth about two and a half million dollars. It doesn't matter when he exited, but you know that, that, that's a great example of uh, he obviously you know that investment would have massively grown his net worth beyond any amount that he could have, he would have ever earned in his uh, in his career. So from your uh, children's book Save Your Acorns, which was aimed at four to six year olds, you later made a card game. Is that right? Is that for older children? No, well, well no, it's the same age group. So it, it, again, oh, right. it's 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 based on the the characters and it's. A, I wanted to buy, make a game that wasn't an app because I suppose as, as a parent, uh, you know, you're constantly trying to sort of not get your kids to, you know, look at a screen or an iPad. Uh, but the idea was the that they draw their cards and your characters from the book. Uh, but the first thing you do is uh, you keep an acorn and you have a, a, a pile of acorns and you're trying to collect as many acorns as you can. Uh, and then you have to eat some acorns, which is kind of like spending. Uh, and then you have to share an acorn with the player next. Uh, and then you draw one uh, from the pack. And then there's some wild cards in there. There's the Silly Monkey, uh, which is the name of the game. And Silly Monkey makes you eat all of your acorns uh, and, and waste, waste everything. And, you know, we've all been, uh, you know, we've all been guilty of Silly Monkey. Uh, but the idea is to be fun, engaging, but create uh, an opportunity for a parent to have a conversation with uh, with their children about money. And actually, there's a huge amount of uh, research that just shows that actually just parents having a conversation with their children about money improves their kids' propensity to save and not get into debt. So this isn't about investing. Uh, but also, it actually improves their own propensity to save and not get into debt as well as parents. Why do you think, uh, Rob, that the there is next to or literally no provision for financial education in schools yeah, great. Uh, great question. Uh, look, I mean, I think that there's a much bigger issue about 
education in the UK and around the world anyway. And I mean, if you're a fan of Ken Robinson, uh, you know, he'd argue that our schools haven't really changed since Victorian times around the world. So I think there are many, many things that we need to rethink about schooling. I, th- I think in the UK, the challenge is, is that you know, funding's been cut. I mean, there's been no net new income into education since 2010. So again, if you understand inflation, basically they've had, they've had half their real income to deliver more education than they did 10 years ago. Uh, and I mean, schools are just like the NHS. It, you know, the, the the teachers are just struggling to, to to stay afloat. So trying to squeeze something else in is almost impossible. Where it is being introduced around the world, state by state in Canada or US, the impact is profound. Uh, and, you know, I think the States is the best example because the states that do provide financial education have, as I say, higher savings rates and lower debt or people who get into debt. And I think it, the issue is about stopping people getting into debt because uh, that, that's the thing that has all the you know, terrible sort of socioeconomic consequences. Uh, and, and debt, you know, the problem with debt is that compound interest is working against you and it just sort of strangles you. Uh, and, and and can be yeah just really catastrophic. I mean that's something that you reference in your TEDx talk, which I was looking at earlier. I think you cite Albert Einstein as, as saying that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world, and those people who understand it benefit from it, and those people who don't pay it. Correct. Yeah. Uh, I mean that that that's the sad truth. Again, I mean the number of university students who don't understand you know, a credit card and, you know, and 22%. I mean, unfortunately, 22% interest, if you're rolling that debt, you know, you're you're doubling the amount that you borrowed, you know, every three and a bit years. Uh, and so there's this financial literacy test around the world, and, and there are three questions. The, the first question is, do you have 100 pounds, 100 euros, 100 dollars? Obviously, you, you change the currency. Uh, and you say, you know, interest rates are 2% for one year. How much do you have after a year? £102, £100, £98, don't know. Second question is there's inflation. Inflation is 3%. Is your money worth more in a year? You have £100, and in a year's time, you still have £100. Is it worth more, the same, less, don't know? And then the third question is, uh, you invest your money, you can invest your money in one stock or a basket of stocks. What's better? One stock, a basket of stocks, don't know. And the proportion of people who can answer all three of those questions correctly is less than a third. What's frightening is the proportion of people who answer I don't know to all the three of those questions. It would be fascinating also to conduct that exercise in Parliament. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, there's, it, it, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, as you know, I come from a sort of institutional pensions world, but I think, you know, people definitely don't understand the state pension or the true cost of the state pension or don't even want to get their head around it. Uh, yeah, I think it would be fascinating to do that test on, on members of parliament. I can't believe it would be much different from the average for the UK, to be honest. I mean, that, that segues almost effortlessly onto uh, Brexit, um, which I was determined to shoehorn into the conversation regardless. <laughs> um, so w- without any sort of pre preempting, uh, it, it, are you willing to say how, how you voted, if you voted? I, I did. Uh, uh, I, I suppose my, my, my age gives it away. So, I, you know, I was born in 1978. I was born in Holland. Uh, so, and I live in, 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 in Richmond, so I, I, I'm a Remainer. This, this may be a first for a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. I think it is. Hold the front page. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay, because we can still remain decent human beings. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. And, and do you still feel the same way? I mean, how do you feel the process has been handled from, from your perspective? Look, so, you know, I'm, I'm also someone who's started my own business and, uh, and studies decision-making I think, look, for me, investing is all about compound good decision-making. And I think I was certainly of the camp, the decision had been made. I didn't like the answer. Let's just get on and make a decision and move on. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so for me, the worst thing you can do is what, what has happened. You know, you, you have to make a decision and live with the consequences and, and, and crack on. Uh, and, and that is exactly what's not happened. So the, 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 the process, I think, is, has been 
even more devastated than I was when I woke up the day after the vote. Do you think uh, that the two-party system, I'll, I'll probably be revealing my bias simply by the, 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 the phrasing of the question, but do you think the two-party system as we know it in the UK can survive this process? Yeah, well, my, my, my guess, my view would be no, but the fact that a credible third party hasn't emerged and the fact that the Lib Dems haven't been more successful, it poses something really interesting. I mean, I was struck last week. I, I was uh, lucky to meet a guy called David McCandless. He's a data visualization guy. He wrote a book called Information is Beautiful. Uh, and he used to work for The Guardian. And he did this infographic showing Brexit through all the different lenses, the, you know, the customs unions, where we are. And what, what struck me was the, the simplicity in which he explained it. But I just have a sense, I wonder who, who of all the people who are sort of arguing or debating about this stuff actually understands it logically. And unfortunately, that's the issue, right, is that this is something that's been played out sort of emotionally. So one hopes decision-making is made strategically and logically rather than sort of tactically and emotionally. An ad, and, an ad, an ad hoc. Yeah, and, and, and that hasn't been the case. I mean, what, what, what I also liked about him is he put up a really good chart explaining the difference between the left and right in America. And he, he caveated it by saying, look, I used to work for The Guardian and I wanted to do this infographic making the left to look better, but I couldn't. Uh, and it struck me that, you know, both this is Republicans and Democrats, so it's slightly different. Uh, but he was saying what struck me is, you know, they both talk about equality and they both talk about freedom, but their definitions of equality and freedom are subtly different. Yet both sides will use that in, in, in their language. And the thing that really struck me was in the general elections when I did one of those tests, you know, those questions where you, you say, should people be allowed to vote in prison? Yes, no. And then... You once you press yes no, it then opens up and it and then it has a sort of degree to which you want to do it. So there's a there's almost like a yes no to it, but then it's a sort of like minus one, minus two, minus three, or plus one, plus two. So you can be yes no, but kind of down the middle, or you can be strongly yes. You know, should we have a nuclear deterrent? I don't know if you've ever done any of these tests. And actually, the, the, my my sort of profile came out very different from the way I've historically voted, which, which again, I think is, is interesting. It, it, it shows that the sort of difference between sort of policy uh, and the, the players, uh, the actors who, who lead us through this is, is misaligned. And I think that's the thing I'm most disappointed with is, is you know, the actors who should be sort of standing up and leading us through this process. And, and they're just acting in, with self-interest. There's some very smart thinkers out there, Rob, that say that we're all going to be living longer, which is, which is a great thing. But what sort of challenges will that have for us for the future? Well, and, and a number of things. I mean, I think, you know, demographically, I mean, look, firstly, living longer is, a, is, is fantastic. But, but the thing that, that has been playing out over time is the sort of dependency ratio, i.e. of the people who are working uh, and not working. And trying to increase the retirement age in any country is difficult. And it struck me that last year, I think Putin tried to increase the retirement age in Russia. And even the mighty Putin backed down against his people uh, when there was uproar uh, against the idea of, uh, of of changing the retirement age. So there's just a, like a fundamental financial question about how do we how do we make this system work? How do we have enough people working, producing to to pay for those that aren't working and producing? And and how do we get that balance right? And there's a sort of compounding effect if you think about it of how much time we need to fund for ourselves in retirement against a backdrop where people just haven't put aside enough money to live a long life. Uh, and I think are relying on the state to do it. And the state certainly hasn't provisioned for it. So th there's a lot of work to be done. I don't know if you've heard it, but there's a story of how the, um, the elderly in Japan are solving this problem. And they don't have enough money to live on. So what they're doing is committing crime. And it's petty crime. So I don't know if you know that in Japan, if you literally just steal a packet of chewing gum, you go to prison. And so they are just doing that. They are making very small criminal acts, but they end up getting a place to live and a, a roof, o roof over their head and a three square meals, basically, which is costing an absolute fortune. So it could, you know, costs 
hundreds of thousands of pounds to process them through the court system and then actually house them. And then when they come out, they just do the same thing again. Yeah, because why? You know what? What else are they going to do? At least they have a, a, a you know, somewhere warm and safe and access to TV and other people. I, I mean, it makes sense. It does. It's just. It was just so utterly shocking that that they were resorting to that. I mean, two things. One is that they would take such a harsh view on petty crime, but secondly, that there is no provision for their financial future, and they're sort of just left in this limbo. Yeah, I mean, Japan has the highest median age uh, in in the world, but I mean, the UK and Europe isn't isn't far behind, and and that's the irony is that the best way to keep uh, that ratio in check, that sort of demographic time bomb in check, is is immigration. So Japan also has extremely low immigration. So just in the US, in 1950, the ratio of workers per retiree was 16 to one. In 1960, that was five to one. In 2015, wow. it was three to one. And by 2035, it would be two to one. And the J- Japan is just uh, uh, ahead of that. Uh, and I know at some point, Tim's going to ask and talk about bonds. But I, I certainly have a, a, a feeling that there is some kind of demographic macro link between aging populations around the world and, and, and demand uh, for, for, for bonds. Uh, but that, that's, the, that's the big thing that no one... To me, this has been a known known, but but no one really wants to ad- address it head on. That you know, the easy thing, well, ab- whether jobs are available or not, but, but what we should start doing is at least pushing up the retirement age and and significantly higher. You know, I'm not talking about sort of one or two years. Uh, you've you've perfectly anticipated my my next question. The the scariest thing I think, the eeriest thing I've ever heard uh, another fund manager say was back in around 2000 when a Japanese equity, a long-only long Japanese equity manager said that Japan was the dress rehearsal and that the rest of the world would be the main event. And at the time, that seemed absurd. And now from the vantage point of 2019, that, doesn't, that actually seems like a forecast. So the, the thesis I would, I would put out there is that Japan is simply 20 years ahead of the rest of us. Namely, they had a, a, a stock market bubble a banking bubble and a property bubble that peaked, that burst in, in 1989. And for the next quarter century, their economy went nowhere. And the difference between Japan and the rest of the world is that Japan, for all of its its quirks, its oddities, and its faults, is amazingly socially cohesive. So these people are, if anything else, whatever else you say about them, they are stoic. And I think the figures are correct. But if you look at the amount of wealth that was lost in Japan during their sort of lost decade, two decades recently, it was between two and three times more severe than the equivalent loss of wealth in the US during the Great Depression. And yet throughout all that period, did the Japanese unemployment rate skyrocket? No. Um, So their society has been through an awful lot. And you could argue that far from being a catastrophic failure, it's actually been on our terms, it's been a, a success. But be that as it may, as you say, it touches on now the issue of bonds. So, I mean, probably all of us are on the call today have had some experience of the, let's call it the institutional bond market, the fixed income world. So my question, first of all, Rob, would be, in what world does it make sense for any rational investor to be buying Bond, government bonds that carry a negative yield. Yeah, great, great question. So, for for what type? Any any investor, you said. Pretty or, much any. I mean, because I, I think the thing that I mean, I I, I don't know whether I call myself privileged or not. But probably we met. Um, I mean, I think we 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 first met when I was working at UBP. So it'd be going back about sort of 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, but probably it was in the context of institutional mandates and a large part of it, which would have been would have been bond related. Individual yeah. investors, individual investors may or may not be aware, but the bond market is almost entirely institutionalized to the extent that you no, know, I, I mean th- these are the figures that I remember, and I haven't traded bonds now for <clears throat> again for probably 20, 20 plus years. But the the average sort of ticket size for a bond purchase is probably the order of about five million dollars. This is not a market that retail individuals realistically can play in. In other words, if you want to diversify bond portfolio, you need to be a multimillionaire. 
So for most people, it's just out of the question. But that that doesn't that's not necessarily bad news because I'd argue today that there's just no value in that market. So again, to to, to go back to you know, the, the the original question, in a world in which a there's never been more supply of this stuff, namely specifically government, but also corporate and household debt, how is it possible to rationalise that massive amount of debt? itself trading on a yield that in many cases in to the order of trillions of dollars is is trading on a negative yield in other words those people who are buying it today are locking in a guaranteed loss if held to maturity in what world does that make sense yeah so the the world in which it makes sense is only really for insurance companies or final salary pension schemes that are trying to lock in a specific outcome and so it's a bit like sort of foreign exchange hedging you you know you may not want to buy the pound at a certain rate and all the rest. But if you have an outcome that you're trying to protect or lock in, then then that's why you do that. And so if you're an insurance company, you know, solvency two forces you to match your duration. And so what happened, and, and go back to the demographic point, is that people wrote lots of liabilities on the other side of the balance sheet, not properly taking into account the duration that they were putting on. That duration actually got longer as people live longer. And uh, and then ended up effectively net short duration. So you could argue that there's been a global macro short covering of bond duration over the last 15, 20 years, which, which sort of ex- explains the, the demand uh, for, for sovereign bonds. I think for other bonds, it's more nuanced. And there are certainly interesting sort of fixed income, illiquid fixed income assets away from the kind of more well-known sovereign and investment grade bonds that one might argue offer do offer value. And and crucially, the, the thing is, is that when you're investing, there's a big difference between where I am today, where I'm, let's say, putting money in my ISA every year uh, and I'm trying to grow the value of my my money as much as possible over the next 25 years to the world in which my mum and dad are, which is they're no longer earning any more money. They'll never earn any more money and they have a pot of savings. So, so their assets sorry to interrupt. So their assets are effectively sacred assets that are irreplaceable. Yeah. And so there's this other risk which is called path dependency or sequence risk. And so the sequence of of returns really matters as DC pension fund investors found in sort of two thousand six, seven when the, the sort of two thousand and eight market crash happened. And and what fixed income assets can do is they can defease, or because they provide that cash flow, they stop you, if you can create the right portfolio, can stop you eating into your capital and can materially defease that, that sort of path dependency. But I think seen through the lens of would I advise Paul's kids to buy bonds in their Jices, the answer is no. But is there a role for you know fixed income assets in my parents' portfolio? Is there a role... For an insurance company to buy bonds with duration, yes, and and that and so for me, context is everything. In your TEDx talk, you cite the example, I think, of one of your games, which is uh, building building uh, tower block, ta- little little blocks of, of wooden, uh, wooden blocks. Yeah, built, Did you want built to, to last. Briefly, briefly touch on that. Yeah, I, I suppose again because my parents were were teachers, I, I realise one thing that I've figured out is that actually what matters is having a good teacher is key to whether you learn a subject or not, and the ability to visualise it or conceptualise it. So maths is a very abstract subject, which is why some people are very good at it and some people just struggle to access it. And I think finance and compound interest is that. And so this game, Money Matters, is a game of games that is all around experiential learning. And one of the games in that is built to last, where we're trying to teach compound interest to kids who who probably wouldn't understand the maths uh, of the compound interest. And we're really doing it by building towers. And the trade-off at the heart of it is do you build a really tall tower, which is inherently risky, and if you haven't built a tall tower before, you, you probably shouldn't do, but there's a promise of high, high, high return, so high risk, high reward, or do you build lots of short, smaller towers and the more towers you build, you that the way the game's structured, you get a compounding. And and in the game, in the slot that you have, you're better you're better off building lots of small towers than a big tower. And actually, the more you practice, the quicker you get at building smaller towers. So it's risk and return, it's diversification, uh, and it's all compounding, but just building wooden blocks. And what's amazing is I've taken to this as as young as nursery kids, and they've kind of got the kind of 
concept of it or ethos of it. I mean, they definitely haven't got the maths behind it, but it's it's it, it's powerful stuff, and it's back to that Einstein quote we talked about earlier. Within the the TED talk, you also talk about this the workshop that you do that teaches children about the dangers of Ponzi schemes and and sharks, which I think is absolutely brilliant. Um, could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So 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 the game is 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 money matters, and there are different stations designed to teach them so there's a station called fighting fit where you can earn money but during the game the person let's say it's me reading the thing uh the, the game gets a call from rich ricky uh, and rich ricky has got this fantastic investment he promises he, he to, used to double work, your money he used to, he used to work at barclays didn't he Which is, <laughs> anyway <laughs> Rich Ricky calls up and promises to, to to double your money. And what always strikes me, I've played this game with uh, all boys, all girls, mixed. Uh, uh, and as a general rule, boys fall for this way more than girls. Girls are much really? more risk averse. Actually, if you if you look at the game, and we can maybe come back to this risk aversion and the impact on the 100-year life that you talked about earlier, Paul, actually. And so look, it's, it's quite good fun. So, you know, you lure some of them in. And a couple of kids will say, but who is Rich Ricky? You know, how's he going to double the money? And, you know, I'm, I'm sufficiently aloof and non-committal. You know, he's just Rich Ricky. He's just promised to double the money. Used to work at Deutsche Bank. <laughs> yeah, the kids, the kids then put their put their money in, and then you call back again and go, look, investments are going really, really well. This is your last chance to double your money. Like you know, put it in. If you've invested already, there's no limit. You can put more money in, and again, you're trying to suck in more, more and more people. You do this sort of three times. And then you finish the whole game and wrap it all up and you count up how much has everyone earned from fighting fit, from built to last and all the rest. And you see who the winner is. And then you go, oh, wait, wait, wait. And someone asks about Rich Ricky. Uh, and then I get a call from Rich Ricky and it's Rich Ricky's last call from prison. He's been arrested. Uh, and and the whole thing is a is a scam. And, you know, I've had kids break down crying. Oh, wow. Uh, it, and... And look, the reason we're doing it is to create that emotional, it's back to the point I made earlier about habits. It's to build that emotional awareness. And, you know, uh, financial scams and scams full stop are just going up exponentially. You know, we all used to joke about the Nigerian email scam, but, you know, people fall for the same effective scam, text messages, a text message from someone pretending to be Apple asking for your Apple ID, all kinds of stuff. And all we're trying to do is build that emotional awareness around something that's too good to be true. And, you know, the sad truth is, is when markets are choppy like they are, now is the perfect time for scamming. If you if you wanted to scam, launch a product offering about 8%. If it's too high, if it's like 20%, people kind of smell a rat. But if it's sort of 8%, and so we've seen, you know, the last two years has seen sort of financial scamming uh, in that kind of you know, the Caribbean property fund paying 8% increasing and, and luring the the unsophisticated investor in, actually. And in the cryptocurrency space as well, where people just don't really understand it. Well, that that's, that's you know, the cryptocurrencies is sort of fear and greed on, on steroids magnified by the sort of social media that sort of plays out the sort of Bitcoin millionaires, yeah, in, in a way that, that we've not really seen before. Again, you know, Bitcoin is something that I think is as polarizing. If I think what are the polarizing topics, they would be Brexit, Tesla valuation, and Bitcoin. And, you know, you can have as equally, you know, <laughs> big discussions about Bitcoin, uh, its value, uh, and, and all the rest. I mean, the, the, there are some well-read articles that would suggest that you might think about having a 1% allocation to, to sort of Bitcoin as a, as a bit of, a, even if it went to zero, as a bit of a sort of uh, di diversifier in there. And you could argue in a world in which everything sort of falls apart uh, and people lose trust in currencies, which is effectively, you know, Venezuela, right? That's... Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, know, but, you know, Venezuela, there's huge demand for for Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies that, that you know, that, you know, a 1% allocation to, to sort of Bitcoin might, you know, might actually make, uh, make sense from a sort of portfolio construction perspective, if, even if you don't believe in it. It wasn't just investment in Bitcoin per se. What, what I was talking about is that there have been loads of scams around 
um, people saying, oh, we've got this, this bot that will invest in cryptocurrencies and we diversify and we do this and we'll pay you 1% a day. All you have to do is put in, you know, 200 pounds or something and then we'll, we'll increase it and, and they do and they do it for a while and then they get a certain amount of money and, and then it all just crashes. So this, is, this has happened a lot aside from the, you know, do I invest in Bitcoin or don't I argument. Um, the, the, for people who don't fully understand the, the subject, they think that if a bot is investing in cryptocurrencies, they're going to make money because that's just going to happen. Well, they and so they, and they fall the, for it. Yeah, yeah they, um, they pay, prey on the ignorance that you can't make 1% a day without risk. It's just not possible. But even with risk, it's still difficult because you're talking about a huge return. And and there were other scams like um, what they would do, that you'd have this Bitcoin doubler. So you'd have a, a scam where if you give this company your bitcoin they give you back double and so what people do is they do it really once tricky. yeah well, well what really they tricky. do yeah well they do it they do it the first time and then people go oh they've doubled my bitcoin so they do it again and that's when they they take it and then they morphed into doubling it so uh, you know so they get they cottoned on that people knew that that was what they were going to do so what they did was you give them quite a lot of money or quite a lot of Bitcoin in the first instance, and then they just keep it. They don't even bother doubling it. So there, there's some really nasty scams out there uh, for people who just don't understand it. And and sadly, it's the, the, the least educated that fall for these scams. So this is why I think this experience you give kids at a very young age, no matter how much it upsets them, it's absolutely fantastic. They should be worried about people like that. And what better way to do it than to given that experience at a very early age. But you say it's the least educated. And so, you know, maybe later on, we're going to talk about Line of Duty and the lead character, Ted Hastings. But his backstory is he's made a very stupid investment in an Irish property scheme that has gone horribly wrong. Yeah. So how is it that, you know, you can't say that Ted's character is a, you know, he, he has to be well educated to have got to the rank and position that he's been in. He's... Uh, you know, he's managed to solve all kinds of crimes, and yet in his personal life, he's clearly, in the story anyway, made some seriously bad yeah, sort of financial yeah. decisions. So I think, for me, it's not even a educated or uneducated, and the reason, or it's not uh, how rich or or how poor you are. You know, the, the, the point I was trying to teach kids is that earning more money is not the key to wealth creation. You know, sports stars, TV stars, musicians. And a lot of the reason why they have to come back 20 years later is because they spent all their money. Right. That's, that, and that can be because poor investment or not understanding tax or, or, or a multitude of things. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. But what, what I meant was by the... See, so a, a character like Ted Hastings, who's... Um, obviously earning a lot of money and you'd hope by the age that he's at would would own his own home if he put a huge amount of in of money into some scheme and lost it then that would be a big hole in his finances but not enough to th- put him into debt and so that's why i think it's slightly unrealistic it's a little bit unrealistic he's going to have a huge pension payout and he's at the sort of age where very shortly he could be drawing on that so I don't, I don't particularly buy that that line. But what I mean by the, the least educated, it's just like people who, you know, find these these ads on Facebook and other social media, and don't quite understand that you can get very dodgy companies selling you things um, via that via that means, and hear the word cryptocurrency and and look at what looks like a small uh, amount of money. You know, as soon as they get hooked into it and they see some returns, then then they they get hit with a big amount. And over many thousands of people, that's obviously big money for the fraudsters and the scamsters. But I guess uh, perhaps I am making a generalisation. Well, they prey on behavioural finance, right? I mean, the, the, or, or they behave on the, the problem is all of these scams use very clever exploitation of our emotional sort of weaknesses, and and what we're trying to do with rich. Ricky has made the kids aware of it. The interesting thing is, a year later, the bit that everyone remembers is Rich Ricky. So Rich yes. Ricky is the most memorable part of our game, uh, uh, which is good uh, because it, what, what, actually the fact that kids cry, the fact that we're, we're trying to 
elicit that fear of loss or that frustration so that you, you're just building that sort of almost sort of like sick like sense of something's not right and i don't want i don't want that sort of and of course they're not losing anything they're just losing a game or they're losing a fictional hundred pounds so uh but yeah no it's, it's it's exactly why we we put it in the game and think it's absolutely important to teach people about it it reminds me there was a <clears throat> i think it was about a year ago but there was a case in nigeria where the police found um, there was a, 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 a disused flat and they found something like the equivalent of $100 million buried under the floorboards. And you got the sense that there was this poor sod who'd been sending desperate emails to people saying, you know, have some of my money. And because he came from Nigeria, no one was, no one was willing to take the bait. <laughs> so so, so, so I, don't, I don't think there were hundreds of millions of dollars, but I do. That's my story, and I'm sticking with that. That's the one I want. <laughs> no, 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 but I, I wonder, I was going to say, I do wonder if there, were, if there was money left hidden in our house in Argentina in bricks and stuff. I mean, they used to pull bricks out of the wall and stuff money behind it and... Uh, uh, when we used to go traveling, I used to carry all the money on the money belt that my mum had made. So I'm sure they used to hide money in, you know, like the film canisters, you know, like the old 35 millimeter yes, film. Yes, yeah. And then they put them in the fridge and the freezer. So I mean, oh, definitely wow. not hundred million dollars, but it wouldn't surprise me if they were, <laughs> I can't imagine that they managed to find all the money that was hidden. <laughs> uh, so probably the same thing, Nigeria, high inflation, millionaire, maybe it was corruptly gained. Where else do you hide it? But what's, your what's, what's your take, Rob, on the, the current uh, state of, of financial markets, notably stocks? So, I mean, what, what one kind of journey that I've been on over recent years is, is you know, I've, I've been anticipating what I would sort of loosely describe as financial apocalypse uh, slash hyperinflation on, driven by things like QE and, and NERP and ZERP. Uh, and the sky has yet to fall in. Do you, do you have a view on on valuations across markets, notably in the US? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question and one you know that that that, that I grapple with because I, I notice certainly in the wealth management world, most people have a very strong UK bias. Where I'm sort of working at the moment, there's a strong bias to value, and and value stocks haven't done particularly well for the last decade. And and actually, that's, a, that's of, a very very polite way of putting it. Uh, and 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 yeah, and people have been underweight the US because it's looked overvalued. And I can, you know, I've been in countless investment committee meetings over the last five, ten years where everyone says the US looks overvalued through a through a value lens. And as you say, you know, that missed out on on huge returns. So when you look at the MSCI world or you look at the S and P five hundred, so I think for me this goes back to asset allocation and portfolio construction and. And and sort of diversification. And if if the US makes up fifty percent of the world stock markets, it's it's quite punchy. I think you need to right size your underweight from that. Whereas I think people often start with that. You know, should I have zero or ten? Yeah. Or twenty percent of my equities in that. Whereas my starting point would be, okay, my neutral position is fifty percent or whatever the you know the, the the total market capitalization of the US is versus all other stock markets. And therefore, do I want to go 40% or 30%? Do you have a view in relation to um, ETFs, to sort of passive investments? Because one, one view, I think, within the city or within the industry, which is, uh, well, it's, it's a topic of debate, is that because you've got so much money piling into what, what many would say is simply in, an indiscriminate form of market access, namely just an index, a low-cost index tracker, that that's that's largely fueled, partly fueled the rise of the S and P five hundred over other markets, simply because the U S is the biggest market. But you know, pride comes before the fall, and there's gonna at some point there has to be a reckoning whereby you know no market is a one way bet. So the fact that the S and P, for example, has outperformed every other major index for about a decade with with you no know, with no meaningful downward uh, corrections en route. At some point, people are going to lose a lot of money. Yeah, although I think there are two things. I mean, I think that the thing that's always struck me is that the US, I remember when I first started my career, and, and, and it was at Deutsche Bank, was after 2001. Was that, and with, one of my, that was with Rich Rickey, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, and 
And uh, that was after 2001. And one of my colleagues saying, the thing about the US is the US always recovers faster than any market. They always sort of sort themselves out more. So again, it all goes back to time horizon. I suppose when I think about things, I'm thinking about the time horizon of my own investments. So I'm, I'm thinking on a sort of 20 year horizon rather than you know, one year or three years. So I, yeah. I just wanted to, to sort of put that in context. And I, so I just think on, on, on a 20 year horizon, there's just something about this, the, the, the mindset, the psychology of the US that's, that's different. I mean, it always stri- strikes me as amazing that, I don't know if you watch the documentary BBC Icons and it looks at the sort of greatest icons of the 20th century. The US was just fundamentally broke in the 1930s. It was just, you know, it was like, on its knees, and yet somehow it, it emerged as this sort of global economic superpower that has just been the case ever since. So I suppose I, I, I'm kind of wary about being short or underweight the US. I, where, where the argument on active versus passive has got me is, before I was a big subscriber of the Warren Buffett advice, which is if you don't know what you're doing, put 10% of your money in cash and put 90% of your money in an S&P 500 ETF with Vanguard or, or, or whoever. And, and obviously that advice has been fantastic advice. And it's kind of the advice I give to my, my sister or, or anyone else who, in the absence of knowing what to do, is better than just sort of putting it in the bank. Yeah. The, the thing that where, where I'm more interested now is the rise of sort of responsible investment. And and maybe we can touch a little bit on sort of climate change, Greta Thunberg, Milton Friedman, and and a, maybe a new a move to a more inclusive capitalism. But, you know, some of the funds that I'm starting to invest in have half the carbon footprint of a standard ETF. And so for me, and when I'm putting money aside for my daughters or even for my own pension, you know, I have a simple belief that £100,000 is only worth something in a world worth living in. And so there's maybe a, a different issue to the one you're making, Tim. Yeah. But, but those passive investments are, as you say, they're indiscriminate. So the, 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 the way they're implemented is indiscriminate. And so you end up with that. And so a, a different approach can get you a, a sort of very different outcome, let's say, from a carbon footprint perspective or, or from a responsible investment perspective. So at some point, something's going to give. I, I don't know what it is. And, you know, I don't I suppose you're asking me how confident am I that the U.S. will underperform all, all markets over the next 20 years? I suppose I don't have high conviction in that statement. Maybe over the next three, five years, it might be. But but as I say, time horizon is everything. Do you think that it's uh, the role or should be the role of the government to step in when it comes to encouraging people to or helping with the disparity between responsible investing and companies that clearly risk the environment? I think, see, Tim's previous comment about the government taking the sort of global financial literacy test. Well, I think the thing that, you know, Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old, is my new is my new hero. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm guessing, you know, another question we should be talking about is, you know, the, the people outside of bank and in the city, you know, are they breaking the law? Are they bad? Or, or actually, are they saving us and ourselves uh, from from the planet? Uh, actually, the UK is pretty good on on making a transition away from sort of coal to renewables not not as good as it could be but it's definitely not uh not terrible i think it's a mixture of of everything and i think actually what one of the other the byproducts of financial education is you make people feel like they're owners of capital if you stop most people in the street and say do you only own any stocks and shares people think they don't own stocks and shares us three our listeners will all feel that they are owners of shares and therefore have an active voice in the businesses that they own. And and that's the, that for me, you know, I sit down with my niece who's 10 years old and try and explain that she owns some Disney and she owns some Apple and, and, and she has a voice. And I think, you know, the thing that struck me is Nordea did some research that they released in Davos earlier this year that showed that a modest sized pension invested responsibly had 27 times the impact on reducing your carbon footprint versus if you decided to fly less, travel less, you know, do a whole lot of stuff less. But as I say, but people don't even realize the muscle that they can flex with their workplace pension or their own personal ISAs because they just don't feel that they are, you know, they're not invested in the economy. And I think this this feeds into, you know, the wider issue around the sort of political disconnect that we're, we're having around the world is that, you know, our capitalism hasn't been inclusive. 
I, I, I should give you credit, um, Rob, because I think, in fact, I know you are the person that put me onto Twitter in the first place. Because I had, when we spoke about it 10 or however long years ago, you put me onto this new social medium and I was very skeptical. And uh, you, you managed to sort of take me over the line. So whether that's been a good development or not, I leave for others <laughs> to judge. But uh, I, I just saw, uh, going past on Twitter, uh, someone had tweeted a, a post from Carl Bildt saying, China was responsible for 28% of global carbon dioxide emissions in 2017. That's more carbon dioxide than all European, African and Latin American countries combined. The problem I have with, with this is that whatever you think about the stinky rebellion and all the rest, the UK is doing its bit, but it, we're inconsequential relative to a player like China. Yeah, I mean, although, I mean, again, the danger, we can all pick facts or factoids, but I think, sure. you know, China is laying down more solar panels and renewable energy than pretty much anywhere else on on the planet. So I think we need to do it per capita. It'd be interesting to see that per capita adjusted yeah. rather than just all the rest. So, you yeah, know, sure, because sure. it's a big, it's a huge, huge uh, yeah. economy. I mean, to, just to put it in context, China has the largest army in the world, but if you do it per capita, it's it's way down. So we, we, facts and figures we need to be careful about. Uh, and I think that's a convenient argument. That, but what we should be trying to do is, you know, influence Chinese companies. But, you know, China certainly in the big cities, is much further ahead than we are in terms of the transition to EV. I think in, in either Shanghai or Beijing, I think most of their scooters are EV scooters, uh, you know, rather than petrol or diesel scooters. So yeah. it, it's the forward direction that matters. Sure. So two more questions. One is, do you think we are looking at an inflationary future or a deflationary future? And secondly, we're recording this on a Sunday night and as line of duty fans will be waiting to see the final as to who h is who is h in your opinion uh, so I, I suppose apart from the uh, deliberate spelling mistake and almost the almost obvious sense to make it look like hastings is h i, I think he's not but uh, uh well you, you, that will come back to haunt me uh when when this goes live but i, I don't think hastings is h but he clearly has some kind of backstory. The, the inflation thing, I think, is is complicated because the, the problem is is that I think our definition of inflation and in the inflation basket is made up of different sub-baskets that are moving in opposite directions. You know, so the cost of white goods or, you know, the cost of some things is just almost going to, to nothing. And then you know, other other things are are, are moving in, in the opposite direction. Even basic stuff like you know school books or, or or medicine. So I just wonder whether we need a new way of thinking about inflation or, or almost like personalised inflation. Because mm. I think you know in the UK RPI or CPI is probably just too crude a measure to sort of capture what's happening in different people's lives right now. It's a bit of a cop out, but no, it's not. It's a very sensible answer we're just measuring it wrong we should be measuring it differently um but I, I was just wondering whether we were heading more towards potentially with all the debt around that the, the western economies are going to be heading towards a deflationary period and it would be it'd be interesting well i suppose that's one way of putting it that you yourself have lived through an inflationary and hyperinflationary period deflation is something that not very many people have had any experience of and you really have to work hard to, to think about how to invest your money in that environment. But it's, uh, it, you know, all this debt has got to lead to some somewhere. And, and uh, at some point, there will be a big resolution. And I, I just, it's it's like one of those things, are cryptocurrencies good or bad? It's kind of a binary thing. Either it's going to be inflation and huge or deflationary and huge. But we're, we're all just trying to work out where it, where it's going to go. I, I suppose if you ask me, so, so on a sort of, Let's say what what world would my daughters be in? You know, in 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 sort of twenty years from now. You know, I I, I see the possibility of sort of some form of universal basic income uh, as a real credible outcome, and the, the sort of mass automation and and effectively loss of jobs because they've all been automated in, in, in some way. I, I, I just have no idea what that does to the economy and inflation mm. and, and society as a whole. So I, I suppose 
inflationary deflationary still seems to me like it's operating in in a context that we think will remain same. I, I, I think there's a, and I personally think there's something more radical might might happen over the next twenty years. But it's surely a, it's surely a great reason to be diversified as, as far as humanly possible because you know, the stakes are high and the future is you know is is literally unknowable. Absolutely, I, I think I think the one thing I'd, I feel is the the future is more uncertain than than ever before. So I think I think we should go to media picks. What do you think, Tim? Uh, absolutely, let's go for it. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so so Rob, I don't know if Tim mentioned this, but we well, we'd like to just give each other some media things that we'd like to watch or see, or it could be a book or something that you either really love or you really hate. I'll answer the question on line of duty. By the way, I don't think H is. H Hastings. I, I think H is a woman, and I think H is Catherine Bigelow. So that's that's my guess, oh, which, okay. I'm not, which I'm not going to change if I'm wrong, because <laughs> I'll be editing this on Monday, putting it out on Monday. So that's my guess for that. But my my um, my media pick for this week is a YouTube link, which is quite rare for me to do that. But uh, there's this really fantastic YouTube eight minute video that talks about how we are the last humans. And it kind of puts a lot of things in perspective. So difficult really to explain, but it's a it's a really sort of smart put together and quite entertaining, quite funny in places video, but just kind of explains that we are the last humans. And, you know, there were other uh, the Neanderthals were bigger, stronger, bigger brains than us, but they didn't survive. And I think it may come back to the uh, the sort of text that's in the uh, book that Tim often cites, the Nouvelle Harari, um, sapiens. sapiens. Yeah, sapiens. So I think it comes exactly back to that, which is which is why I liked it. But it's they talk about money as well, and it's our society wouldn't work if we couldn't imagine money. It's a really fantastic YouTube video. It's had about two million hits. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Tim, what have you got for us this week? My 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 pick is uh, the death of Stalin, which I watched uh, yesterday. In fact, it's so good that I watched it twice. <laughs> really? Um, so it's kind of inflationary uh, perspective. Um, extremely well written. Uh, Armando Iannucci directs and writes along with people like David Schneider. Um, I, I'm not sure if this got much by way of general release because I, I seem to recall it, it was did. difficult to get to, to see it at the cinema. But, oh, I saw it uh, at the cinema. Oh, okay. yeah, it, yeah. But, but, but terrific, I thought terrific, terrific film, terrifically funny. It's basically a, a comedy drama about surrounding the events around the death of Stalin and the, the power grab that happens in the immediate aftermath of his death. Um, the uh, it's it's a fantastic ensemble piece. Everybody is just, just firing on all cylinders. Um, so it's terrific to watch. For people who like their comedy uh, jet black, this is absolutely for them. The the only sort of lingering thought that it, it leaves with me is how is it that people of the the caliber of, of Messrs. Yanucci and, and Schneider can lampoon and skewer mercilessly the, the problems with communism and yet seem to be perfectly happy to sort of drift along with a sort of drift towards socialism. That, that for me is a really interesting thing. It's a question I would raise of any lefty lovey because for me, I can't see how you can criticize uh, Soviet communists on the one hand and then embrace socialism in the UK without batting an eyelid, but that's maybe a separate issue. Interesting, interesting. Rob, do you have one for us? Can, can I have two? One old, one Please. new? Yeah, and I'll, and I'll link it to an old uh, one of your podcasts and a link to the conversation. So the old is a book called "Who Moved My Cheese" by Dr. Spencer Johnson, written in 1998. Uh, I recently oh, yeah. reread it, uh, but it's about dealing with change uh, and different people who do it. So I think the conversation we just had about change and rates of change uh, is key. And it's such a short book; it's free. You can basically Google it, and there's a PDF you can read for free online. Uh, but but the second thing I wanted to link to was a podcast, uh, a blog called Degrees of Certainty by Rory Sutherland, who I think was on uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, is that right? Was he on your? Yes, show? he was. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely fantastic. And 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 so he writes about bees and bee behaviour, and he talks about the the fact that sort of twenty uh, percent of bees ignore the sort of typical dance and go off in their own direction, and these are kind of like rogue bees. Uh, and the reason why you have rogue bees is that they know that there is never a single right answer and that their model of the world is always temporary and imperfect. God, that's brilliant. Uh, and that really resonated with me. Uh, and 
but the point is that most of the time those rugby journeys kind of are wasted. Uh, but every now and again, they discover a new source of nectar, <laughs> a bit like uh, Who Moved My Cheese, the different mice who go off into the maze. Uh, and what it does is that without the rogue bees, the hive gets trapped in a local maximum and starves to death. Uh, and the point of it is that we need a trade-off between exploitation and exploration and experimentation, which is critical to flourish. And that really resonated with me. Uh, and I think it pulls everything together and it pulls together one of your previous speakers. Absolutely brilliant. Well, thank you so much for that. Rob, if somebody wanted to get in contact with you to talk about their, say, pension requirements or something like that, or just generally talk about the markets... Pollen or nectar. Indeed. <laughs> how, how would they do that? What would be the best way? So uh, Robert, Robert J. Gardner, which is G-A-R-D-N-E-R, uh, on Twitter, and, and, and likewise on LinkedIn. Very happy to sort of follow, be followed on, on Twitter and, and, and connect on LinkedIn. Uh, as, as you're probably aware, in the UK, financial services means that I'm not allowed to give people advice on pensions, but very happy to signpost people in the right direction. Absolutely brilliant. Well, thank you so much for that. And uh, we should be in time to catch some of the, or the beginning of uh, Line of Duty. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. And uh, just to say thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been absolutely brilliant. It's been really entertaining and really thought provoking. We'll provide links to everything in the show notes. And thanks to everyone who's listening. Thanks, Tim. Have a fantastic evening and enjoy the bank holiday. Thanks, Paul. Cheers, Tim. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I've just got one question. What is Line of Duty? Yeah, Line of Duty is... Um, I've been trying to get you to watch it for years, Tim. It's the best thing on, t- <laughs> it's the best thing on TV. It's the, it is the best thing on TV, literally. I mean, go, go to BBC iPlayer yeah. with your better half and start from episode one, series one, and I guarantee that'll be all you watch. This is this, it. This is this is the the series finale tonight. Is it? Well, no, it's not the finale. It's just like season five, and it's it's. Oh, it's like Game right. of Thrones. It's going on forever, is it? Well, no, not really. It's just it's just it, it's not overstaying its welcome, and yeah. it's it's there's a there's a little bit of padding maybe in the second series, but it, the writing is just so good. You, it's really really good. It's just amazing. Trust me. Start episode one. Series one, because it all interlinks. It's so clever. It's so cleverly written. And it's what a, a political thriller. No, 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 no. no. It's a, it's a cop thing. It's cop um, thing. Okay. Yeah, but it's, but it's not like it's not like anything else you've ever seen before. Okay. It is basically the anti-corruption department of uh, the. Oh, inter- the internal police, affairs. Internal, internal affairs. affairs. Yeah. Okay. So it's corruption within the anti-corruption department, and trying to root out bent coppers. And it is just so. It could only be written by someone who knows the material so very well, but it's got an amazing criminal mind. Jed Mercurio, who's the writer, yeah. is the is the closest thing we've got to Agatha Christie. I mean, he's oh, just okay. he, he's seriously amazing. Well, if, if it's know. on now, I'll let, I'll let you get off and catch. Oh no, no, I mean, I was just kidding. I'm, I can oh. catch up with that, but I was I was just sort of for the for the people who are into it. It's like this is the weekend, you know. It's like who shot Jr. Sure, this, sure, sure. There's been this thing that's been leading up to it, so. Um, so yeah, so that, that, that's that. So if you, I would highly recommend it. It's all on iPlayer at the moment. Oh, okay. So st- start on, okay. start on season one. And it, yeah, I didn't want to watch it either at the beginning. Like it was cop stuff. It's like, oh yeah. no, I can't, can't be bothered with that. But it actually, it was, it's so good. It's so, so good. Um, yeah. Excellent. Good there stuff. Go. Thanks for that. Well, okay, uh, Tim, we're off. Uh, I'll see you shortly. And, uh, yep. Yeah, uh, thanks for that. And, uh, be in touch. That's fine. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks, Tim. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.